Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Carmen Polifito, and I'm pleased to welcome back to Retina Synthesis Dr. David Lally from Springfield, uh, Massachusetts, uh, where he is a venture retinal surgeon, also a faculty member at Tufts and at the University of Massachusetts. David, welcome back to Retina Synthesis. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Carmen. Yeah, excited to be here. So you presented at the Angiogenesis 2022 conference. Uh, held virtually from Miami, the Derby and Oaks phase three results. And these are results that have been out for uh, several months, but you presented them in a comprehensive way. And can you just give the audience uh, an idea of what the goal of these phase three studies were? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, the, the investigational product, it's called PEGS to Tacloplan, and it is a synthetic uh, peptide bound to a, a PEG, uh, a polyethylene glycol molecule uh, that is intravitreally injected into the eye, and it has a strong ability to block uh, uh, complement factors C3 and C3B to try to pr uh, prevent further activation of C3B and uh, further activation of the complement cascade on the surface of the cells in the retina. And um, as, as we all know, there's been a lot of uh, genetic studies that have come out showing that complement plays a role in patients and their risk of developing advanced stages of uh, macular degeneration. So it became a target for a lot of uh, different uh, sponsors out there to go and try to block uh, different parts of the complement cascade. So this one blocks specifically C3. And uh, based on their phase two Philly data, uh, the phase three studies were designed where there were two parallel studies called Oaks and Derby. And they were identical studies, except Derby, uh, excuse me, except Oaks had microperimetry testing while Derby did not. So that was the one difference. But uh, these were, just as you would anticipate, they were very large, uh, multi-center, randomized clinical trials with sites all over the world. Uh, and patients in these uh, trials were randomized to one of uh, four groups. So they could either receive pegstataclaplan, it's 15 milligrams, uh, and it's injected as a uh, 0.1 ml volume dose, uh, but they could receive it either monthly or every other month. Uh, or they would receive sham either monthly or every other month. And it was randomized in a two-to-two, one-to-one fashion. And the primary outcome was at month 12. And it was looking at the change in the area of the GA lesion size from baseline uh, to month 12. Uh, and so each study targeted about 600 patients. So it was about 1,200 patients in total. So a very nice large trial uh, uh, completed all over the world. So should I, you want me to go right into the results or, uh, yeah, I mean, I, let, yeah. let's, let's talk about the results. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so what was in it, what was very interesting about the results in the Oaks study, uh, pegs did meet its primary endpoint. It reducing the size of the GA lesion from baseline to month 12. So, uh, in the um, Oaks study for the monthly group, it was a 22% reduction at month 12 in the growth. 
The every other month uh, dosing was 16%. I want to make sure I have my numbers correct. And that was highly uh, statistically significant with significant p-values. However, uh, on to the contrary, when we looked at the Derby primary results, it did not meet its primary outcome at reducing the GA growth lesion size to a pre-specified amount, and it barely missed its primary endpoint. Um, the p-values are not statistically significant for either the monthly or the every other month treatment arms. Um, but when you pull these two trials together and you put the monthly group uh, from Oaks and the monthly group from uh, Derby together, it was, it does look like it, it was a nominal p-value, but it was, it did look like it was, it did statistically reduce the progression rate of the GA uh, and uh, similar results for the every other month group. So, you know, certainly it would have been nice to have two studies that were positive and highly significant, but that's not the real world as we all know with clinical trials and clinical trial design. Um, we're not exactly sure why there was a difference in Derby and Oaks. And there's a lot of uh, work going on behind the scenes to try to identify why there could have been a difference between uh, the two outcomes in these studies. But uh, there were many, pre-specified secondary and exploratory analyses that were performed. And I do think they're important in the context of talking about this uh, type of therapy with these type of results. And so uh, some of the, some of the pre-specified analyses that were interesting is they looked at the, they looked at patients in Oaks and Derby who had bilateral non-foveal GA. So the non-study eye, uh, uh, excuse me, bilateral uh, uh, GA with the non-study eye having no history of wet in that eye. And they looked at the growth rate of the treated eye, uh, treated with Pegsataclaplan or the non-study eye that was not treated. And we saw that in both Oaks and Derby, when you combine them together, uh, there was a reduction in the progression of the study eye in, in both the monthly and every other month treatment arms compared to the non-study eye. And non-study eyes are, are, are not perfect controls, but they're pretty good controls for, for a GA study because we know that patients with bilateral GA, uh, their GA growth rates are pretty similar on average between the eyes over time. The other, the other thing to comment on would be uh, uh, those eyes that were receiving uh, this treatment could potentially have a contralateral effect in the other eye that would theoretically slow down the progression in the non-study eye. Uh, so we do see sometimes with our intravitreal therapies, there have been reports that there can be some effect uh, of that drug on the contralateral eyes. So if anything, it, it was with that exploratory analysis, a little bit harder for them to show that uh, or for the results to show that, but it, but it did. And, and that's opposed to the sham group. When, when they looked at the sham group in the, in the non-study eye uh, compared to the study eye, it grew at a similar rate. So, uh, so that kind of goes with the natural history studies that we know that, that both eyes kind of usually go around the same, the same rate. So that was encouraging to see. The other thing we saw when we looked uh, uh, carefully at the baseline demographics of these studies, 
they were pretty well balanced overall when you look at all the baseline demographics and characteristics, but there was uh, a couple of notable differences or imbalances in the studies. So specifically in the Oaks study, there was an imbalance in the lesion location. So there was uh, between the treatment groups uh, and specifically between the monthly group uh, compared to the sham group where we saw that there were more extrafoveal lesions at baseline in the monthly group uh, compared to more foveal lesions in the sham group. So that would theoretically could be a uh, confounding uh, uh, baseline difference that would affect the results that we see uh, uh, because we know that extrafoveal lesions do grow faster than foveal lesions. Uh, when we look at Derby, the Derby trial, it was also pretty well balanced overall, but there were two imbalances to note. The one would be uh, an imbalance at baseline in the lesion focality. So there was more or greater numbers of patients in the sham group that had unifocal lesions compared to the monthly uh, pegs to tacloplan group that had uh, higher rates of multifocal lesions. And again, multifocal lesions typically on average, we would expect to grow at faster rates than a unifocal lesion. So that would make it, uh, could be a confounding uh, variable there. And then we also saw greater number at baseline, uh, greater number of Drusen number uh, in eyes in the sham group compared to the monthly group. So, uh, so one of the analyses that was done was to look at a lot of these confounding variables at the baseline and try to see if an analysis could be done that could try to balance or correct uh, these baseline differences to the best of the analyses ability. And um, when, when those analyses were done, it did show, it did show a little bit be better differences between the treatment, the monthly treatment group and the every other month treatment group uh, compared to sham. So, uh, so I think when we look at the totality of the evidence, you know, we see that the Philly two, uh, the phase two Philly uh, study data looked pretty good. It wasn't a perfect study. Uh, there was some criticisms of uh, the dropout rate. Um, there was also some criticisms about the safety uh, that uh, that a lot of patients in the phase two developed exudative CNV, um, but. Uh, if we talk specifically about the safety and the, and the development of CNV, we saw a couple of differences in the phase three study compared to the phase two study. So uh, in the phase two study, there was a higher number of patients at baseline who in the treatment arms who had uh, a history of exudative CNV in the non-study eye. And so we know patients that have a history of CNV in one eye have a higher risk of developing CNV in the other eye. Uh, and we saw lower, and so that was about uh, 37, 40% of the patients in the phase two study with the monthly uh, pegs to tackle plan treated group had a history of CNV at baseline in the other eye, in the non-study eye. Uh, as opposed to in the phase three study, we saw uh, a lower number. So we saw 20% of the patients in the pegs to tackle plan treated arm had uh, CNV, a history of CNV in the fellow eye. And and, and that was encouraging to see uh, based on the results of what the, the risk of exudation was and what we saw. And so um, one of the unexpected findings, I guess I should back up, one of the unexpected findings we saw in the Philly phase two study was that there appeared to be 
a difference in the treatment groups uh, it, in the risk of developing exudative CNV uh, in the study eye. And it was for the monthly pegs to tackle plan group uh, in the Philly phase two study, it was 20% of the patients developed CNV in the study eye at month 18. But what we saw in the phase three study is that at month 12, so it's a little bit shorter than the month 18 uh, in the phase two study, but at month 12 in the monthly group, 6% developed exudative CNV. And that was compared to uh, 2% in the sham group. So, so we do think that you know, there's, there's definitely more and more mounting evidence that uh, complement inhibition and this investigational product uh, in some manner, which is unknown at this point, uh, may increase the risk of exudative CNV. Uh, but that risk appeared to be lower in the phase three trials compared to the phase two. Um, and there's a lot of debate going on right now about, about what that means and what the risk is for patients uh, and how concerned should we as a community be. And there's some good points, I think, to be made on both sides uh, of the issue. Um, my perspective is, is that wet AMD or neovascular exudative CNVs uh, are treatable diseases, and we have good therapies for them now. Uh, and these patients are coming in frequently for injections, typically once a month or once every other month, and we're scanning OCTs on them, typically each visit. And so I think the hope is, is that with frequent monitoring, with imaging, uh, that we can detect these exudative events if they do occur, we can catch them early. And we know if we catch, if we catch exudation early and we treat it early, we might have better outcomes for these patients. So, so, uh, so I think it's something to be, it's, it's something important to be discussed, but, uh, but I fall on the side that that, that risk to me is acceptable. Um, I also look at the risk of doing nothing for these patients, right? And I think that has to be part of the conversation as well as if we do nothing, you know, we currently have no therapies uh, that, that impact the rate of progression of GA. And we know the natural history, these patients steadily lose their vision. So it, you know, it's pretty close to 100% chance their vision will be going down over time. So there is a risk, I think, to patients to doing nothing. You know, if we as the physician do not think about this therapy as an option, at least as an option for them and discuss it with them, um, I think we're doing the patient a disservice uh, because if we sit around on the sidelines and uh, they continue to progress at their, the speed that they're progressing, we may have missed an opportunity to help people. And I think, I think this is particularly important for extrafovial patients. And, and, you know, I find in my practice, I have, I have a, a, a decent portion of my GA patients that are still in their 60s and, uh, or even early 70s, but 60s, and they may have bilateral non-foveal GA, but they're working. And the, and the thing they care about the most is, is driving. So they wanna be able to drive. And they, they, they are very, very worried about losing their ability to drive uh, because these are very high functioning people in society still. Um, and I look at it as if, if this patient is a, in their 60s and they have bilateral non-foveal GA and they're working and they wanna retain their license, and this product uh, may offer them an opportunity to reduce 
the progression or expansion of the atrophy into that foveal center where their vision declines and they are no longer legal to drive, that that really can offer patients um, uh, a benefit to their lives. Now, there's a lot of uh, critics out there who are not happy to see that we don't have any good functional measure outcomes, right, for these therapies. Right now, it's all about um, it's all about the change in the anatomical size of the lesion and where's where are the functional measures that we're seeing uh, that show benefit to patients. And we haven't seen any yet in the phase. I will I should note that in the phase three studies, all of the functional outcome measures that are planned were pre-specified to be analyzed at year two. So they they're not they weren't processed at year one. It's going to be at year two. So we have to wait and see. Um, but I think a part of the issue that, that we should be all thinking about is, is, is what is our capability of measuring functional changes in GA patients? And, and, you know, in my experience in, in being part of a lot of these GA trials is that a lot of these functional measures do not just, they don't seem adequate really for this disease specifically, you know, it's a very complex disease very heterogeneous disease, many different phenotypes and patterns. And, um, you know, there's different types of extrafoveal lesions. Some are pretty close to the foveola and some are, you know, uh, five, six millimeters away and not really threatening the fovea, foveola. So I think part, I think part, part of the, the unmet need here is, is really there's an opportunity for, for better functional outcome measures, um, that, that, that can be developed, that can help us really try to determine those, those measures. But we'll see what, we'll see what year two shows. Uh, but if I, I'll just say, if the year two functional data does not show a, a meaningful benefit, to me, that doesn't necessarily, uh, would not necessarily change my thinking in terms of whether I wanted to use this for patients, because I do consider that it might be a situation where we just don't have the cap the instrumentation and capabilities of making that measurement, you, you know, uh, to be able to, to see a difference uh, in, in, in what it is. And, and so at some point, I think when we analyze all the data and we take the totality of the data, uh, we have to understand the limitations to, to what we're able to do and what we're able to see, and we have to make our best judgments. And, and, in some of these pooled analyses that were done in the phase three trials, I should mention for the extra foveal lesions. So they took Oaks and Derby and looked at just the extra foveal lesions. They saw that the monthly treatment group of pegs to tackle plan, it reduced the growth rate. I think it was 26% at, at, at um, month 12. So, you know, pulling the throttle back 25%, uh, for an, for a non-foveal GA patient who's working, who wants to retain their license, that may offer them, it's, I can't say, I mean, I can theorize in my head, it may offer them another six months, a year, two years before that atrophy gets into the foveola and, and their vision drops where they're no longer legal to drive. They can't work any longer and all that sort of thing. So, you know, if these therapies are offering a patient an opportunity to work in society, for another six months, a year, who knows how long, but you know, to me that, that, that is a, that is a benefit for these patients. So these are two year trials. 
Yeah, they're two-year trials. So the treatment, uh, uh, the treatment regimen is for two years. If you're in the monthly treatment arm with takes the tackle claim, you get a monthly injection for two years. Uh, every other month arm gets every other month for two years. Sham is sham for two years. And then there is right now ongoing an extension trial. So there is a three-year extension trial that's currently ongoing. And um, uh, the sham patients are now receiving injections. So they are now receiving the product. Uh, uh, and that's going to give us some pretty interesting and I think helpful data of, you know, what happens if you delay therapy for a couple of years and then start, what do we see with that sort of, uh, uh, what do we see in the data there uh, when you start intervening two years later uh, in terms of those growth curves? Uh, but yeah, currently all these patients now are receiving therapy. What's the definition of extrafobial in this study? Yeah, so in this study specifically, the definition of extrafobial was any, any lesion that was not in the foveal center. So uh, the, the foveola, the center foveola point, anything that was off of that, literally off of that and not touching that center point. Uh, would be considered extrafoveal. And that is, a, that is a difference uh, compared to some of the other trials that are going on and how they define extrafoveal versus foveal. So uh, some trials define extrafoveal uh, is, you know, to them, when you look on OCT, when you see the inner uh, nuclear layer tapering to one point, and you're starting to see the umbo uh, on the OCT, that edge of the umbo, um, uh, would be considered the, the border of extrafobia and phobia. But for this study, it was anything right off of the foveal center point. So right now the sponsor is putting together the, the phase two and phase three data for an FDA submission, correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, my understanding is they're, they're planning to submit uh, in the first half of this year. And, uh, and uh, we, we would, I think, hear a response sometime in the second half of the year at some point. Well, good. Thank you so much, David, for a comprehensive review of this very important work. And um, let's hope things go well at the FDA. You can only hope. Thanks for being Thank on you. Retina Synthesis. Appreciate it. Thank you.